All righty, let's tell the listeners about your awesome, and I mean awesome, Friday night text. Oh my God, it was the best text I ever, I've ever gotten. So it came from a client of ours who was having their pool turned on. And during the process of that, their pool technician said that water was not getting to one of the lines of the pool pump. Mm -hmm. And he surmised that that line had gotten crushed during our construction. Of? A stamped concrete pool patio. Which is not modular, which means? Which means we were going to have to tear the whole thing out. What are you guys doing? The Landscapes and Pancakes Podcast. Wow. There are a bajillion aspects to the green industry. All right. I just want this podcast to be real. <laughs> Interesting. It's not as fun. What? But I think people go through this. I know. None of it makes sense. Seriously. We are the ones designing and we are the ones building. We respect each other. Respect. Okay. So obviously that was probably one of the worst texts of my life that I had ever received. Yeah, let's face it. We've gotten a few Friday night texts where people have had a few beverages out in their landscape and they're enjoying their fire pit or whatever and they, you know, drop us a line to let us know. But that was exactly 180 degrees from the one you got. Right. So I immediately went into panic mode Mm -hmm. and you were working really late that night and I was trying to figure out if you were on your way home because I didn't know what the right time would be to tell you. Which I can't stand. I'm like, just give it to me. So I re- you said something like, yeah, you were like. I was like, what are you doing yeah, right now? What, you, what time will you be home? Are you driving? Why? <laughs> I think that's what oh, I said. Are you driving? Right away, I'm like, why? What's wrong? Oh, no, I'll just wait till you get here. I'm like, no, 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 no. Tell me now. Right. So I told you and proceeded to have a meltdown. And to your credit. Tears and everything, people. I know. I There's bad. been a lot going on. felt bad for you. There's been a lot going on. Um, to your credit, you are just kind of like, we'll deal with it. Yep. Whatever it is, yep. we'll deal with it. Yep. And in my mind, I'm like, that's thank God that Neil is like that right now because I thought you were going to also have a meltdown just based on how hard you've been working and some of the things that you've been dealing with. Well, I think I, I tend to have more consistent meltdowns than you. But when something, it's weird in my life, when something's really bad at a certain level, that's when I'm the most calm, which our personalities in that way kind of really help each other. But, you know, half of me thought there was a problem, like something was crushed or broken um, because of the pool project that we're on now because we broke some lines and that was no fault of our own. That's a whole other story, but we pressure tested that one. Um, But the other half of me thought, well, there's just something wrong. There's just something wrong with the pump, and how do we know? But right. so well, I just I tried to bring that to the table, and I, you know, I said if it's broken, then it's concrete, which was something that we've actually been um, having some disputes on lately. I mean, it's gotten to be kind of ugly. Yeah. Well, let it, me just say this though: in the midst of that moment, the way that after we had spoken. I immediately went into crisis management mode and started thinking about the steps that we would have to take. Mm -hmm. So I decided that if we had to take the whole thing out, we Mm -hmm. would just do pavers because we could do that ourselves. It would probably uh, look a bit nicer and save us money from having to completely have the patio repoured because we were never going to match. No, no. Well, yeah, that's so we could go to the nearest control joint, rip that section out. 
pour that, have it stamped, try to match it, but we never would have gotten the color right. completely dead right. on. Right. And then I was um, thinking, okay, well, is this an insurance claim and can that help? I mean, I was in and I was thinking, massive insurance. I mean, massive uh, just crisis management mode. Right. And in my mind, I'm going to that um, I'm going to that that point where I'm, I'm thinking about like the backfill that this company did. And that's, man, when we got into this project, they obviously took out all this earth when they dug the pool and then backfilled all the around the pool because this pool was built up. Remember, they had like a concrete wall on one mm-hmm. side to lift up the yard. And people, when I tell you there were essentially potato-sized rocks to volleyball-sized rocks as the backfill all around this liner pool, you know, the kind of things that frost heave up and down and grind against pipes and grind against the wall of the pool and eventually, you know, pit it and dent it. I mean, that was all it was. So in my mind, I'm starting to think about, okay, well, maybe this is on them. I have no way of knowing when they shut this thing down when it went through the winter, you know, freezing and thawing, that something didn't happen. So now I'm starting to get like, um, what's the word? I don't know. Mad. You were no, getting. No, uh, it starts with an L. It's like not legal. It's, uh, come on, help I don't me know. out here. Despite the face you're making at me right uh, now, I don't know I what word. I can't believe I don't remember the word. Well, something was good happening. Word. Something was happening. But, um, yeah, so. I mean, I guess I should just tell everyone now, as it turns out, everything was fine. There was actually a block in the line. So the next morning, <laughs> after I didn't sleep a wink, and I'm sure the clients didn't sleep either, no, felt I got a text saying the technician thought of one other thing to try, and it was actually a block in the line. It wasn't the technician. It was a, it was the owner of the company came out, right? No. No? no. Okay. No. Don't interrupt me. I have it correct. <sighs> I misunderstood. Yeah. So, um, you know. <laughs> You know, it's funny. This is, uh, there are many takeaways from this. One, always pressure test your lines. Yes, well, we, we do, but this company was so unhelpful because we were doing this late fall, early winter, and they shut down. Remember, because we asked them to deal with the liner, and they're like, nope, we're shut down. All our employees are gone. And the fence company was the same way on this project. Okay, so no matter what. So they weren't helpful. And yeah, I shouldn't have proceeded without that. There's no doubt in my mind. Right. I think that's the first time we've ever not done that. The word is litigious, by the way. Thank you. I just thought of it. Right. I started to get litigious. So <laughs> that, was, that was one takeaway. Another takeaway is that we have been having conversations between ourselves lately about the... Now, let's be honest, the caliber of projects that we have been taking on or are coming to us. That and the materials, what fits our brand and what doesn't. So we, we, we've conversations, we've had arguments about stamped concrete because, um, well, let's just put it out there. It's not modular. It can't be repaired. And this and is once specific. It's, cracked, it's done. And this is specific to around pool patios in particular. Yeah. Yes. But like, so, I mean, so we have this, we have our price points. So we are very natural stone centric in what we do. This particular prod project came from a, a couple that we really like. We did work for them before. This was early on in our, our um, careers, right, with Magma. And they came back to us. Now, in a perfect world, we would have said the big fat no in a nice way and not taken it on. But we gave them that entry-level cost, which was stamped concrete, and it almost bit us in the ass. Yeah, it almost seriously put a dent in right. our company's ability to survive. And Samantha. I mean, that would have been. No, well. no, please. No, 
Absolutely not. You okay. go to the See, worst place. Yeah, I'm going to nope. be dramatic. You fix it okay. and you move on. I'm being dramatic. You know? But like, uh, so... That's how it felt So as as the person that's designing and dealing with the budget and estimating, that's Samantha's role, she's giving them the low cost, which is the stamp concrete, saving them a few grand. And we have essentially been arguing about this because I don't want to do it anymore. I didn't want to do it on that pool and projects moving forward. So now we came to a consensus that Friday night that we are what? Never going to do stamped concrete around a pool again. But I think we've also come to a consensus that in a way we have to protect our brand that we've developed. And our brand is highly... Made of the the natural stone, and even I mean, we'll do pavers. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a superior project to a cast poured in place patio because it can be repaired. You know, things can be picked up and things can be replaced and put back in place. So, um, yeah, I think it just at some point, at some point, we can't be so accommodating that we feel like we're giving up on the quality yep. of the materials that we really believe in. And I think that was just yes. a huge lesson for us. And it actually kind of ties into our guest today, John Horhan of Vintage Builders, because we had an amazing, intense interview with him. And we talked with him a lot about branding. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also talk a lot about kind of how your uh, how your businesses can kind of evolve yeah. from kind of doing more day-to-day versus managerial work. Yep, um, which is something we've evolved into. So I think w- we've kind of gotten to this mold where we're trying to balance the product that we want to build and the projects we want to be associated with and then dealing with the need to be basically, you know, at times, production-based. And that's what happened with this job. It was like, okay, we, 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 you know, looking back on it now, that job with that stamp concrete job, we did it in the fall because we thought we needed it. Lo and behold, we didn't. So, right, but that's always the scary part for me is seeing, you know, workflow. And it's like, okay, well, if I was to say we're not the right fit for this job, is there another job that's going to come? Turns out there was, and there usually is, but it's still, it's still hard to say no. So, um, and again, just always thinking back to, you know, if you look at our website and you see our work, does it fit what we're presenting? Um, and it didn't. So lo and behold, it didn't bite us that bad. So we should be thankful for that. And now we move on and we learn together. And Samantha, it's a great thing because now we don't have to fight about stamp concrete anymore. Well, now the funny thing is the last few days or, you know, little things kind of have come up here <laughs> and there. True. No matter what now, goes wrong. No matter what goes wrong, we just look at each other and we say, well, at least we don't have to replace a whole pool patio. Damn straight. <laughs> Well, let's just talk um, a little bit more about our guest today. Again, John Horahan from Vintage Builders. Just want to let you guys know that we thought it was important to have a builder with us today so that we could kind of get a builder's perspective on the green industry. Yes. Um, But John also has amazing insights into running a construction company, whether it's home construction or kind of landscape construction. I think you can kind of take what he has to say and really apply it towards Definitely. either trade. And um, it was an amazing conversation. Yeah. And you know, what's funny is I thought we were so outside of the box with having him on our landscapes and pancakes podcast. It turns out we shot a story out uh, the day we recorded 
And I'm getting DMs from people being like, oh my God, this is so awesome. You have this guy on. I listen to him all the time. He's awesome. And someone else said, I was just going to suggest you guys have him on. So lo and behold, I guess I wasn't that creative. No, and we have him on. So let's get to it. Let's do it. We are super excited today. We have John Horahan, owner of Vintage Builders. Um, You guys are out of Natick, right? Yeah. Massachusetts? Okay. Um, And he's also the co-host of the Modern Craftsman podcast. Yes. So thank you so much, John, for joining us today. It's very exciting. Pleasure's all on this end. Nice. So I have to tell you, um, when Neil first approached me about having you on the podcast, he had been looking at your Instagram page quite a bit and um, watching your videos. And he turns to me and he goes, we really need to talk to John because he is a badass. And so <laughs> that you. was enough for me. <laughs> so simply put, <laughs> so as any good researcher would do, I went to your website so that awesome. I could learn more about you. How'd that go? Funny enough, <laughs> there was just a homepage there with a picture of you and some other random person who I didn't know. Who Two adorable was. dudes. Two, it's a great photograph. Um, <laughs> but why don't you have a website? <laughs> uh, it's, as we joke about it on our podcast, it's a work in progress. Um, I honestly, when clients, not too many clients have asked, but for the most part, if they do, we're putting everything we have into our projects day in and day out where we're not about marketing so much. Social media is marketing, but I'm not trying to portray something and promote something on a website right now when I'm just really trying to we're year three going into year three and it's that's our main focus is that I mean for the first year we didn't have any finished photos so I wasn't I wasn't going to put up like graphic images of like hey this is what we're thinking of doing because I don't want to project um so we are currently working on it and it's I say that in all honesty because I sent two emails this week with kind of the breakdown of how I want everything. And it's kind of been a a work in progress because the first year I changed everything I wanted from the whole prototype. And then now it's really where I think I want it to be. And Ben, who's in that photo, is my partner, um, business partner. We came from our last company together. He worked under me. And I was like, you work too hard not to have a company in your name. So brought him on as a partner shareholder and everything. And I just had to laugh about the website because I, I mean, we get it, you know, we definitely get it. It took us years to get our website to where we really wanted it to be. But for all the amazing projects that you do and how beautiful your work is, I had to laugh that I tried to learn more about you and (laughs) I couldn't very easily. (laughs) We don't self-promote on like online besides social media. It's funny. Like it's, it is crazy. We have, I had one client say, so is that what the kids are doing today? You're not doing a website, <laughs> just, just directing you to social media. And I was like, I felt like I was 12 years old. Uh, <laughs> he was looking at me like, why are you doing it? I'm like, we'll, we'll get there. So, so. Yeah, all in due time. Yep. So, um, so for the sake of our audience, which at this point I feel like is really mostly based in the green industry, mm-hmm. I just wanted to kind of explain why we wanted to have a builder on the podcast So we've been talking a lot, Neil and I on the podcast, and even in our social media world, we've been talking a lot about how we feel like the green industry is a very misunderstood industry and that it encompasses a world of opportunity for people. It's not just mowing someone's lawn. It's not just putting in a patio. There are a thousand different avenues that you can take within this industry. But we also feel like not only is it misunderstood generally, but that it's pretty misunderstood in the construction industry. 
And that's undervalued, I would say. Yeah, undervalued is maybe the better word. And I think that stems from a lot of our personal experiences working on projects with builders or architects. Um, So we wanted to kind of get your take on where you feel like the green industry fits in to what you do. And then in addition to, because you are running a successful business and you're so passionate about it, and it really looks like you're doing what you want to be doing, we certainly want to delve a lot into just what it takes to run a successful business that is construction-based. So we're going to kind of hit up all these different things. Mm -hmm. But that's one of the reasons we're very excited to have you on. And I think that we've been so impressed by the work that you guys do. I mean, the level of detail, the level of craftsmanship, the the level of care that you put into, we can really relate because we certainly work that way on our projects. So you really seem like the perfect person to talk to about all these very exciting topics. (laughs) Thank you. That's a hell of an intro. Uh, You know, I hope I hold up to the hype. Um, It's, you know, it it is tough. When you're saying that question, it's making me think of, we have all different types of products at different levels, meaning price point, you know, and then also what people want for deliverables, you know, where their focus needs to be. Some people are very digital where they want a lot of, you know, lighting and, you know, automation and stuff like that. And other people really value craftsmanship and the the details of trim and cabinetry and all that stuff. And then there's a few here and there that I feel like not, I don't, there's almost never a product where I walk into where it's a la carte, meaning it's the, they're finding a builder, they have an architect, they have an interior designer, and they have a landscape architect. The, the, the full package is never usually all put together. We've only had one product, and that's usually because it's dictated by whatever process we're going through with the town. Meaning, we did one in Brookline. That's from that photo from our cover page, our website. Um, and <laughs> we're going to keep going back to that. <laughs> yeah, no, and I get it. By all means, you, you should. Um, but like that one was because we had to go through historic review, and they wanted to have a landscape plan, so they dictated it for us. But normally, like even the, the big one, we're finishing a 12,000 square foot in, in Dover, Mass. The landscape architect came on board about halfway through, you know, with the client. And then even at that point, it wasn't, I found it's it, not a lot of people listen, you know, yes. and that's, that's our biggest job and, <laughs> on, on, on all levels. So on all, correct. On all levels. Okay. Yes. And, and it's what I found there is, uh, so that landscape architect came into that project. I was kind of not really needed to be involved because I wasn't going to they were going to kind of create the design and then kick it over to me to implement and install. And so, but I like to be involved. I like to be over the shoulder, kind of see what's going on, get excited. Cause I have to see what's going to, I think about the angles when you're in the house, what am I looking out towards? So if I can get a better picture of that at any given time, that's it's, it makes my job easier and better. And it makes everything kind of work as, as a better grouping. Um, and I, I just, I walked through that process with that landscape architect and, and then I'd talk with the client and I'd realize as the design kind of morphed, they weren't listening. And I, and I was like, so I had to be client or the LA wasn't listening. The, the, the architectural, um, the landscape architect, it just wasn't. Yeah. I mean, I, and again, I'm kind of on the peripheral, you know? So my real job in this whole thing, when it gets to that type of relationship is I had to raise my hand and go, Hey, I want to confirm that we're doing this. Like we had to put in, in the beginning, in the back of that house, it was just a couple patios. And then I get the next design and there's like a 12 foot retaining wall. And I'm like, okay, well that gets, why are we burying eight feet of a 10 foot wall 
You know, is it because you want to have it, you know, a certain way to build a wall? I want to understand that. And then we finally get the final drawings when I have a form guy there and sorry, a site guy to dig it. And it turns into an 85 foot wall that I'm like, has, so again, raising my hand and I just go to the landscaper. I go, has this been discussed with the client? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. This is hundred percent how they want this. So then behind the scenes, I go to the client and go, Hey, are we sure we're doing this wall? Like, does it make sense when you're burying, we're burying $25,000. Like if we put it in that aspect and the purpose of it is grading, are we comfortable with the grading of it? And the client's like kind of on the peripheral, not paying attention, just going, yeah, well, I hired a landscape architect. I, they, I'm paying them to figure this out for me. Turns out we didn't need it. Interesting. So then they fired the landscape architect. At well, that even point. that, the grading is probably the hardest thing for a client to visualize. Yeah. And it, it's probably the hardest thing to um, communicate as well. Yeah. So I can see you're coming in at that moment, like major red flags. Yeah. It's like, what, what are we doing here? Like that 25 grand, it would be a kick-ass planting program in the front of the house. Sure. You know? So it's like, how, how do we kind of, it was, it's really tough. And I found that happening quite a bit across the board. So I think to get back to your, your question of, you know, undervalued. I think there's a lot of people that like contractors, there's a ton of contractors out there and not a lot of them care. A lot of them are just there for a dollar. It's find the right ones that really gel. Like we've done stuff with um, Matthew Cunningham, who's mm -hmm. phenomenal. Like yep. he just, he gets it. Like, and there's certain people that click, I think like interior designers and architects, they have their own style. So if you were to introduce two or three of these, you know, design professionals, whether it's landscape architecture, interior, they have to have the right kind of, kind of feel, you know what I'm saying? It's everything's a relationship. It's not just say, what do they produce at that level? Everyone should execute the same level. It was really like Matthew is known for his like, you know, salvage granite pavers that blend with the landscape where it's not like hard edges. It's really everything kind of blends in. So I think it's finding as a builder, I need to find the right people for the right fit for our clients, whether it's you guys, whether it's Matthew Cunningham, whether it's a couple like, you know, Greg, Greg Lombardi, we've used them. Mm -hmm. So it's like, how do you find the right people? And they all come in different pay grades. So I don't know. If, I don't know if it's you guys that are, are misunderstood. It's, it's really our job to understand the value you bring. Right. At different levels yes. For different clients. So this is, this is all awesome stuff. What I, what I want to do, because we're going to delve back into that a little bit mm -hmm. deeper, but I think just to give a sense to everybody of where you are coming from and mm -hmm. kind of the authority that you speak with, can we just go back to your backstory a little bit? Mm -hmm. So in other words, I know, you know, you started work in the construction industry as a laborer. You have a degree in construction management. You were at one point doing a lot of the work yourself, and then you decided to go out on your own. So in, I don't know, 60 seconds or less... <laughs> <laughs> how did you get to vintage builders <laughs> go i mean yeah i started in the business making hockey sticks you know at a, at a hockey rink you know hockey stick furniture and and that's kind of watching this whole house and then from there i just i drank the kool-aid and i couldn't get enough of it so as fast as i could learn a new you know piece of you know education with this industry whether it's putting a window in i'd buy those tools and i'd want to move up so i moved up very rapidly you know, I think seven years I went from a laborer to, you know, a lead carpenter, which I was running the crew. And at that same time, I was going to college, getting a management degree in construction, not because I thought education was kind of the key and I needed it. It just fell into my lap where I wasn't going to go to college. I played hockey. 
they asked me if I wanted to play college hockey. I said, Hey, what would I do there? <laughs> like, all right. Can besides, I just say though, that's where the badass comes from. It's that hockey mentality. <laughs> it, it's fun. <laughs> I, I gotta say it's, it's one of the best traits I've, I've ever adopted is, is playing hockey. It's, it's fun. It's taught me a lot, but, um, it's, I went to school for that and I started in architecture and then realized that I loved architecture in, in high school. I was probably top my class in drafting, but it didn't hold a, a candle to what the other kids that had come from all over the U.S. to Wentworth for architecture. I, you know, I was kind of working my ass off and doing everything I possibly could, put in 150% into it and these other kids were casually strolling in with amazing work. And I was like, I, not that I give up on anything, but I'm like, I should really rethink this. And I couldn't see myself in a, in an office job, like drawing it. I really like to see the composition come together, but also the execution. So I was really torn with that. So then I, I switched over to construction management and really found that it clicked because I was still going to class and working. So if I didn't have any classes till 10 o'clock, I would work all morning on the site and come to class. And that was key for me. So then I, I graduated and looked for a bump from my boss at the time because I had been there for seven years. I was at like $18 an hour. College degree, like, here's the big bucks, right? That's what everyone thinks. <laughs> and he's like, no, nah, dude, nothing's really changed. And I was like, uh, excuse me? I have a diploma? Congrats on that piece of paper. Right? Exactly. That's how it turned out. And then um, he was like 63, decided to kind of really downsize and downscale and um, we basically went to go pick up our tools across all the different jobs. And every client told us to keep our equipment there. And they gave us a job. They said, until you get on your feet, finish all these jobs. So we had like an instant company that time. So I started my, my original company way back then when I was like 22, 22. Ran that for six years. Wow. And I was still, still had a tool belt on being like a lead, but also managing everything. Basically a general contractor. So you're still swinging a hammer, you're still running the subs, doing a little bit of design. Um, and we did that for six years. And then Hunter, who's now 13, um, my wife became pregnant with him. And I would, that company had gone from like doing like a laundry room in a couple of basements to doing 9,000 square foot houses in, in Newton. And it was wow. like, that was a, it was a crazy ramp up, but I never took the tool belt off. That was my biggest, I should have, I could do both those jobs at 40% at the same uh, time. Yeah. And I can't do one. I, I, I didn't think I could do one without the other. I had my strength with my tool belt. That's what I thought and not my mind in my management skill. And I had to then kind of switch it over and pivot to more management. And it, it, it definitely changed my life and made me more successful. And at that point we had, you know, we hadn't even had Hunter yet. And my wife was just like, we really need to rethink what we're doing. Cause I was doing it for passion. I wasn't, I was filling my pockets with sawdust, not money. <laughs> and it was, I really needed to redo that. So my, my wife, Tara, who's been my rock for everything, just really, she got vintage back up and running when it was all said and done. Like, she's like, you got to do this on your own. And, um, but yeah, we kind of just, she's like, let's, you should try a management job. So I interviewed with like 41 companies. Then I jumped into the management, really just instantaneously took the tool belt off and never put it back on again, unless I was at home. And I worked for a company, understood what that meant to work for somebody else for the first time in a long time. And I didn't love it as a PM because you did everything for people as if it's your own company. And um, no one had the value in it. And then I was just like, I'm done. If I'm going to do this much work and not have my personal name on something, then I need to uh, rethink it. 
So I then left with Benny and we started Vintage Builders. And Interesting. So I remember hearing on one of the podcasts, um, The Modern Craftsman, you and Ben, I believe, both had company trucks at this, mo- at this time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we did. Yeah. And so you guys quit. And then, you know, now you have no vehicles. You were renting cars for a while? Yeah, we were renting cars just, for, for like, uh, six months at a, uh, and just kept renewing the rental. And I was like putting Home Depot stuff in it, like stock through the window across the, the mirror. And that was, I think, by a strategy of our old employer was, you know, sell your vehicle, have this. And it, I found myself in a spot where there was a point of no return with that company where, and I've talked to a lot of people about this particular situation where you have, you're 150% invested in this company. You don't have a company car. Your phone is owned by them. Things I thought that were like rewards to me turned out to be things that were tying me to this place where if I left, you would be ha- you'd have nothing. You'd have no laptop. Yeah, and it, and it was really, really tough to realize that and then for it to all be taken away um, for no reason. You know, so it was because we had stayed on as kind of a consultant for that company. And they're like, keep the trucks, do this stuff and, until you get on your feet. It was kind of all, you know, it was all good. And then it switched one day uh, right before Christmas, two days before Christmas. Wow. Took everything away, took the, the, the rug out from underneath us. And it was uh, it was not the best year. Oh, so that that one that that blindsided you. So not the best year. So I'm like imagining four months in of weekly car rentals, is there a moment where you're thinking to yourself, what am I doing? Did I do the right thing? No, I mean, for, for all the drama that was involved with our previous company, that I could run twice as much work. Um, so, I mean, it just, there's a point where you can build great things, but there's also, we don't talk about our, our own personal health and, and mental health, where you bring that home. You bring home that baggage every day. Oh, I hadn't noticed. I never noticed. (laughs) Yeah, you guys. Yeah, together. (laughs) But it's really tough. And, you know, with your kids, it's like you'd snap at anything. Like, Mike, I'll come in, my kids will hit me with a a tennis ball. And before, I would have lost my cool and a heartbeat. And my kids don't deserve that. And I was realizing that was happening. You know what I'm saying? Like, I I would would work a 12, 14-hour day, come home, and then my phone would start ringing then by my old employer. And it's like, dude. Wow. I've yeah, been doing this all day, like yeah. back off. And then I would not be connected with my kids. Right. And we talk right. about that a lot in the podcast is how do you, um, there is no balance in my opinion. I think they're two different universes and, and trying to make sure that they don't blend is at home is kind of crucial, even mm-hmm. though I'm doing a podcast at home, but they love <laughs> this stuff. Like they get, you know? Yeah. I've always said like for, for my experience, um, if I, if I work for somebody else, which I could, and I could probably make a pretty healthy salary doing it. I'd probably work less hours than I do now. Things would be easier to a degree. But I still say with what we do now, I have this, this level of freedom. And I don't know if it's in my mental, but I just feel more free. I just feel more liberated because I came from a world where I was working in a firm and we were pumping out designs and construction details and documents. And it was salary-based and to a degree, I think they took advantage of that because, you know, I was, I was putting in 50, 55 hours a week with these crazy deadlines and never seen anything build. And for me to get built, and for me, that was, that was tough. Like I just, it, it doesn't fit my personality. And it just, that's kind of why I went into the world of, of building these things that we were designing. So it's just a level of just 
freedom that I just feel like I have, even though I may put more hours in on a day-to-day basis. Do you feel that way, John? I mean, given the amount of work you still have to put in? I mean, I think it's tough going back to what you just said. I, I don't, I don't think it'd be easier. Um, I think when I had, when I, I've done it both ways and I think it's, I put in the same effort I did with someone else's company as if it was my own. And the problem is, is like what I tell a lot of young people in the trades that, that are employed by people is that it needs to be a two way street. You need to be learning from that company just as much as you're giving to them with your hours and your effort. And as soon as that pivots to a different way where the scale is now tipped in their direction, you as an employee need to correct that. Talk a little bit about the moment that, and this kind of ties into everything you're talking about. I loved your story about the Johnny Lane concert. Mm. I think this just ties into, again, probably one of the reasons why you felt like you did want to get vintage up and running was this idea that, you know, you saw this artist, this musician kind of pouring himself into what it is that he could do or what he was really good at. And it sounds like that really inspired you for all the reasons you were just talking about, about taking what you realized you were good at. So maybe it wasn't those architectural drawings back in your college days or high Mm -hmm. school days, you know, but what you are really good at is bringing everybody together. And there's a passion in that, that then you can bring to every project. Just kind of talk about that experience and what, what happened to you that fateful night? <laughs> well, you know what's funny? It's you guys said it in the beginning. You're a small boutique firm, and there's something I've been to big concerts like Toby Keith and and that stuff where you but you don't get to see the sweat on their face and what the effort they're putting in. Right. So being boutiqueish, you know, small, small is scary because people think you can't handle what you can handle. You know, right. that's why I'm hesitant. And boutique's nice. Um, but that's that's the name of the game is that when I was sitting in like, I don't know, the Wilbur or wherever it was in in Boston where Johnny Lang was like, I don't know, 10 feet away. And it felt like he was singing directly to us and like I was getting his soul. And it was like, that's where that's where it clicked. It was like, I don't want to be a big machine. I never want to lose this feeling right now. How do I do that? How do I how do I get that across the clients where? You can pick, I said this from the early days on in my career, is anyone can build you a house. It's a box, but we build a home. So it's like, how do we do that? How do we get that across? Meaning there's, we've all been there where our grandparents, they had a house that their, their, their father built, right? There was something about that. It was an heirloom that, that was passed down from generations at that point where kids knew their family had built that. That's gone. That whole storyline is evaporated. So in this crazy world I have is that I want to try and like people go, I don't want to have walkthroughs where kids are involved and having to worry about them. They are the next generation. Those are the people we have to influence. And I only get an opportunity where they walk a home and I get to walk through walls with them, make it fun, understand stuff where it's like, this is a crazy thing and educate everybody from the client all the way down to the kids because I want them to see what's behind walls like in their house. When they look at their walls, I don't want them to see the paint. I want them to see that there's layers from paint to plastic to sheetrock to studs to insulation, you know, all that stuff's in there. And, and if they recognize all that, maybe they will value a home 20 years down the line more than just something that's a commodity that you then buy and sell and trade for X amount of equity for the next deal. We do that in particular with kids too on our projects. I mean, when we're 
walking through projects with the clients and the kids are jumping on the stepping stones. I'm always showing them the plants and giving them funny stories about the plants. And, you know, we're implementing ways for them to be completely a part of the space. So whenever I know that clients have kids, it is 100% important to us that we get those kids involved in the space right from the beginning. And it's, it's that same sort of feeling where we're trying to create memories and appreciation for the craft. Yeah. Not just the space. It's kind of cool that you brought that up. I never really thought of it that way because the majority of our work, um, people live in the house at that moment. So we have a lot of younger kids that are watching what we do. And it's like the best TV show ever watching what we do, digging outside and doing all the stuff. And they're, they're involved. And like, as as soon as I see them, I always tell them what we're doing and what this machine does. And um, I never really thought of it that way. I like the way you put that, like their, their understanding of what went into their space. Um, That's pretty and That's there's something to be said about, you know, there's, there's, I don't know what the numbers are, um, but the percentage of people that work for a living and don't have something tangible besides paperwork or emails that they sent off, like they got 25 emails off today. Yeah. That's their success rate for that day. You know, we physically get to see that every day. Like those kids that work that are at your projects that look out the window from Monday to Friday, there's an instantaneous, you know, tangible difference from what they saw. You know, whether it's a pool going in or a hardscape or patio, the patio didn't exist. And the only thing that really was involved with was hands. I think the biggest thing you asked about my website, we are branding that entire website that it's handcrafted. Everything we do is handcrafted by hands, not just by me, but the bobcat doesn't move unless there's hands involved. Like everything that's involved is people are doing it. And, and it, that's what the essence is. I thought of something last night. I forget what it was that I was like, would you, oh, it was, I was watching a TV show and it's like, if you, if you just got something from Amazon and you're like, I wasn't sure, I'll just throw that out. But if you knew that Bill from down the street handcrafted something and you weren't sure about it, you would absolutely go back to him and go, hey, can we change this? So can we manipulate this design or can I give this back to you and you give me a different one that I really love? There's something about that where it's not just something that's a commodity. You know, like there's a lot of houses that are just going up to go up to feed the market. Yep. And as landscapes are not even an option. It's no. just a plug and play, yep. fill the gap and, and do perimeter plan things, foundation, cover this up. And it's part of a strategy that's probably designed around, I would say realtors, that realtors want a little bit of curb appeal, but not too much. And they don't yeah. see the value beyond putting 1500 bucks worth of plants in. Yeah, they're just satisfying the bank. I mean, how many patios yep. are out that are, pavers set on like you know maybe an inch of stone dust on top of dirt no offense it's, but we call them the builder special, the builder special. <laughs> yeah, no, it, and there's a reason why that exists in like spec i've been trying to redefine spec where it's like we do semi-custom and now i'm just like we just do custom nice just to be, just to be honest it's the even the specs that we do that are that mainly mean that they're they're not sold before they're built they're still custom to us so i've given up on the spec terminology i like that so it, just just taking a, a, a step back for a minute. Now, when you talk about getting the kids involved, this has got my brain going. I like this mm-hmm. because I've always thought the framers on a job, like to me, they're the magicians, man. Like they, I mean, that's where like the math comes in, the skill level comes in and the way they have to work is intense because they're outside, you know, they're hanging trusses. Um, to me, I mean, that's like a major skill 
where the Finnish carpenters- John's smirking right well, now. No, I'm dying to hear what's Finnish going on in his head. <laughs> the Finnish carpenters get the love. So if kids are able to see that from frame to finish and what goes in to the whole entire structure, the bones of the house, right? Everything yeah. that supports the house, not just the finished topical stuff, they're going to learn to appreciate that more. And I've always said like, so in our industry, you know, everything that's underground, so much of, you talk about money being buried underground, it's the drainage, it's the base preparation. And then you, you talk about the grading and the subsurface grading and the subsurface drainage that we have to do. That even just the trenching for a conduit, knowing yeah. where you need electrical and I mean, plumbing. How many times do we have to, gas. We have to open up one trench to find an existing conduit to get another one underneath it. So to me, that's like where a lot of the magic happens, but you know, the outdoor fireplace, that's what gets the love. So, and that gets, that gets back into the trade where I find people don't want to do the dirty work, the underground work, the hard work. But um, if we can help educate people that like, there's a real skill, there's a real craft to excavation. It's not just digging a hole. Right. Do you away. know how much more satisfying it is that you moved that dirt, you moved earth mm -hmm. to, to, to make something happen? That, that's in a, logical, in a logical format, and ideally you moved it once. Yes. So it's not in somebody else's way on a job site, right? Yes. There's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's, there's a whole there. science, yeah. to, right, yeah. that dealing with. I mean, that's it's a battle it. that, it's like an OCD battle that you have almost every job is what's the efficiency level of the overall site from that thousand foot view. How is, where's everyone parking? How are they parking? Can I save them time? As a GC, we make every subcontractor money if we do our job right. Or we lose them money if we are frantic about it and we just run around like crazy. But to go back to your comment originally when I was smirking was, they might be the magicians, but I mean, that's where kids will see, like I said to clients, I just had this meeting on Friday, is that, hey, once the foundation goes in, it's gonna look like the house is flying. And then it's going to look like someone pumped the brakes because it's right, the most right. satisfying thing to uh, see it go right, up. Right. But then once you put all the stuff inside, you don't really see it, the, the dramatic kind of turn. But I don't look at them as magicians. I look at them like the little dudes from Fraggle Rock that are below <laughs> ground. That's where it clicked for me, man. It's because those guys, if you think back, so they would be down there building their little, you know, worlds. And then the, the big monsters would come down and smash it all up. Those guys didn't say boo. They went right back to working. You know, and it's, that's where, that's what we do. No matter what happens, whatever designer changes something, we just have to basically pivot, you know, and then go right to it. We don't say no. A lot of our stuff is, everything we do is cost plus. So, you know, there's no real change order involved. It's like, if you want to pivot on the design or, or adjust something or move it, we're happy to do that. We'll do it in an efficient way, timing wise, so that way you're not still prolonging that scar for healing. We just try and get it done right away, stitch it up super clean, so that way it's healed by the time you, you know, move on. I think I don't look at anything like it's actual construction. Everything's like people don't see it that way, in my eyes. So, all right. So you cost plus. So, mm -hmm. how does the estimating process work? And how do you? Because you had a quote, Smith. It was the quote. It was talking about how to really find what's missing on the prints, which is a good one. As being, as being your job, find what's missing and, and really get all that information on the table as quick as possible. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the overall goal is you take a set of drawings and then you really dig into it like we're doing one right now where we'll do an overall square footage. I have a spreadsheet that is kind of my baby. I've had it since those early days when I was a carpenter, basically since I left college. Um, and I've put every number in that spreadsheet for like, let's say the last three landscapes we've done. 
and if that landscape changes from you know bluestone to blue mist to granite um, curbing they're all different numbers and they're broken out per square footage so if that client wants this I can basically go off the last project I had, last numbers I have for my subcontractors. I don't need to call them to get my numbers. I can just basically divvy out the square footage. I use like VUs 360, which is a free software online where it'll, you know, take in the PDF. You can scale it off of whatever dimensions are there. And then it will then give me my square footages, basically elevations, linears, all that stuff. And then my spreadsheet will dump out what my last related costs were for said product. Um, and I usually average those, like if the last six products were the same, I'll use the average, which would give me a multiplier for anything from plaster to just general windows, meaning you break it down that the last four houses had 33, 37, and 44 windows. I break out those prices, that will give me an average cost per unit. And then I'll just generally, again, it's a general rule of thumb because usually the drawings when we get them at that point are pretty, you know, they're um, schematic. You know, the ones we're looking at right now that we've talked to them for about a year in Weston, that one is just rough drawings that got me square footages. So I'll dump that into my spreadsheet. Literally, it's as easy as dumping it in for a square footage. If they're building 3,400 square feet, it will break down 400 line items for me and give me every division cost and your allowances. And I can say these will adjust depending on what your preferences are because I don't know what their design element is yet. Like, okay. is it more modern? Is it more traditional? Is it like wallpaper or is it more coppered ceilings you know so it gives them a general budget and that will give us a jumping off point meaning is this where we're on the same page so i don't have to burn a ton of time and i took a lot of this from yeah i created the spreadsheet when i used to do my own roofs so i did like a roof spreadsheet at a siding spreadsheet window replacement basement renovations so it just it turned into a million tabs that then will dump into one big spreadsheet so if we could if we could take that and relate that to the landscape portion of a project. Um, so one thing I have found is that I think when we first started off, we were doing kind of square footage pricing, mm -hmm. but I very quickly realized that wasn't fair to us or to the client because either the client wasn't getting charged enough or we were overcharging and more likely than not, the client wasn't getting charged. Enough. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of what it came down to. So um, I have a kind of a couple questions. So, when you are working with a landscape contractor to this point, has your experience been that they are always your sub? And when, and if they are, when you're doing this, Excel, this spreadsheet work, is this really just considered kind of preliminary numbers that you can give the client to say, okay, this is kind of where we're starting, but you're probably going to go up from here. As I put it with my clients now, I'm throwing softballs and volleyballs and beach balls around for these numbers. So like we're doing one in Cohasset right now where, I walked it for an hour and he bought the property and said, give me a number on everything you think. And I was like, all right, I'll pull out the walkways. They're like, they're just some crappy brick walkways that are, you know, builder, builder grade. And I was, and I was like, we'll do, we'll do, you know, granite again. We'll do granite here. And then all the plantings were like evergreens. I'm like, we'll do boxwoods, you know? So I was like, I'll take all these numbers I had had for square footages. And I threw softballs at this and volleyballs, you know, different size budgets at these things. And I told him that I go, this is what we're looking at. But you put all those in and you break down like the front walk, the mudroom walk. And I don't do it general. I don't go, hey, here's the front program. It's 180 grand. It's more of here's all these different elements. And I then I put it onto a budget. So that was even everything out back pool, pool. I break down for the pool basically itself, excavation and the shell. Then you have coping. Then you have equipment. Then you have um, general landscaping, fencing and covers. 
So when you break it down, it's probably a $200,000 pool. The actual pool itself is probably like 65, depending on the size and then depending on what they pick for coping. So that general budget I give this square footage then gets refined as I get more intel and more information, you know? So when it becomes reality, like this budget works and then the landscape architect, you know, builds it around the same square footage. Like it's, I didn't, I didn't price out a 10 by 15 pool. And then he draws a 30 by 40. Things adjust, I have to adjust with it. But then the other part of that question was, do we usually have that like, under our umbrella? The, the answer is, is whatever happens on the project, meaning whatever they're comfortable with. They might come in already with an architect. I don't want to have to keep track of your guys' hours on design. It, I don't need to be the babysitter on that. I'd rather have you guys, it'll be way more efficient for you guys to run with the client on design and, and just kind of keep you know, tweaking it and doing that going, hey, tweak it and then you are like, you're at revision three and then you have to call me and go, Johnny, do you think I have enough no, no money left in the budget to do one more revision? No, like that, just let that roll. And I'm happy. I don't need to make, you know, whatever it is, 6% or 7% off your design fee. It doesn't, I'd rather get the design. It's yeah. kind of interesting for us. And I don't know if you would appreciate this or be annoyed by it. Um, but because we're design build, we actually have characteristically worked directly with the client for the whole process. So we don't work as the sub to anybody. We work for the client directly. And I feel like that has been a really great business model for us to, to work that way because, and I, I'm sure that you can appreciate this if you like really think about it. We want complete control over our projects. Yep. Um, and the only way we've found to have that is to run the entire, the entire show yeah. essentially. So it's our crew actually building the projects, um, meals on site in the field building the projects. I get on site when it's time for me to come in. And that's actually been very effective for us to work. And then it becomes the challenge perhaps to work with the builder within that context of making sure we all get what we need. I think the biggest challenge in us working with a builder has been grades and, you know, elevation. So this is my bone to pick with builders. No, so bring it. Bring it. <laughs> First of all, Water as it pertains to how it gets off the house, right? Yep. What do we do with that? How do you control it? Right. And then um, I, what I went through recently was um, veneer elevations. I painstakingly, this is a, a rather big project, painstakingly laid out all the elevations for this natural stone veneer around this pretty sizable structure with a lot of different, you know, walkout elevations, a lot of terraces, a lot of things happening. So I have our landscape plan that we, we did and we get our grades set and we, we hammer out all these elevations um, for grades and then they don't meet them or they ignore them or we've had it happen in the past where they don't build the deck that comes out to the front walkway with the wood stairs. The stringer is either set six inches too low or six inches too high because they quite frankly just ignore it, which is, I know not the... I, I, I imagine you don't do that, but some of these guys, it's as if they just, they just don't give a crap. I think our frustration working with builders has been just to get it out there yeah. is that we are paid by our clients to come up with a design and figure out the exterior. And, uh, and it just seems like all the work that we put into it gets ignored 
for some reason by the builders that we're working with or changes get made to the architectural renderings and then we're never told that. Yeah, it never gets and, relayed. <laughs> right, so and you know, like if you change the elevation that you come out at deck to a set of stairs down, I mean, that affects the driveway elevation, the finishing, yeah. you know, the, the, the slabs poured for the garage. Yeah. It affects the drainage. We've had, we've had major upgrades in um, the drainage programs because a builder set the carriage house at the wrong elevation that I had to come in now and pitch everything in the opposite way where I had positive flow. Now I have negative flow and it all has to be captured on site. Yeah, I had to catch it. Yep. So it's been, it's been interesting. And I think for a couple of these guys, I think they kind of look at me now as the guy that comes in and solves the grading and solves the drainage. So it's almost as if they're taking advantage of it. It's tough. I mean, I'm trying to, think about this in a different manner like if it was an interior designer for lighting you wouldn't like if i just went in there and put the recessed cans in wherever i wanted it it's how do you make the builder accountable for for that where you're not just making it go away for them um because then they'll never learn it's my job it's my duty as the gc general contractor in that essence to kind of make sure everyone's on the same page that the bill the client's not going to do that but the client's going to who is the client going to assume that's going to happen who's going to make that happen that's on my plate. So I think it is tough, especially I think it's been tough over the last couple of years because everyone's been so busy with, you know, great work coming in all the time. Like one job always gets better than the next. So no one's been able to slow down enough to really have that communication. And it's been tough. I'm going to tell you right now, I haven't been perfect, but it, it has, it's a huge burden that, that I take on where I try and, oh, did I forward that to so-and-so? I, that is my burden. You know, you wake up in the middle of the night sometimes. 3, 3 like, a.m. Is the, is did the, I do that? Yeah. 3 a.m. Yeah, that's why I take CBD like it's. <laughs> <laughs> like it's going on a business. So have, yeah. you, have, you, have you ever been in a situation where an architect is doing something? Like I, I find like walkout basements and bulkheads and these sorts of things, window wells, where it's just not going to jive and you kind of have to step in to say, we need to rethink this. Yeah, I'll definitely bring that up to the architect alone. And to say, hey, and I usually that's where my my architect architecture like background does come in. I'll draw it and go, hey, this is what I'm thinking. You know, do you agree? Or like I tell my guys, you know, when you call the uh, designer, call the architect. Don't ask them your their opinion. Go like, hey, I'm thinking this. Plant the seed for them because half the time they're 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 probably dealing with 14 other things that they have to put a you know get solved that day. But like anything, I don't want you to come to me with a problem. No one likes that. You're not bringing any value to the table. It's bringing the the issue, the concern, and a couple of solutions to the table that we can both, you know, kind of go back and forth with, throw it up in the air and see what comes out. But no one wants to go, hey, that's wrong. That window, not going to work. Right. It's all call about me, the approach. Call, yeah, yeah, call me when it's ready, when you have it solved. Like, <laughs> dude, that's not going to get you yeah. anywhere. But going, hey, I'm worried about this. This is what I'm thinking for grading. You agree. And it's basically getting them to say yes or no. And then it's in the nose. Okay. It, now, you know, where you have to come back from. We do it with clients all the time. I think the book that uh, Chris Voss has never split the difference is, is a great communication book that everyone should listen. I've listened to it probably four times. Oh, you get that. Okay. Yeah. He's, he's got a master class as well. Um, it's really, really good about how to communicate. He was like the chief um, hostage negotiator, sure, negotiator for uh, the FBI for like forever. Oh, wow. But he talks about different ways of using your voice for like tone, getting people to say yes or no. Neil, it sounds like you and I could probably (laughs) use that. Just between the two of us. (laughs) 
So, you know, I, know, I mean, it's perfect. I mean, but we that, communicate great. It, you talk about it all being the approach. So we had, and, and this was probably no fault of the client. I think there's a project in Marshfield that we did where it was this massive house. It was this multi-million dollar, beautiful home they were building right on the water. And they had a side yard, which was pretty narrow. And the homeowner really wanted to have access down this side yard. There's things that they wanted that were really important to them. And they brought us in so late. I'm looking at the architect's drawings and I'm seeing the need for, you know, first there's a, there's a door up here that we need to walk down from a deck structure to grade. And then 10 feet away from there, there's a window that's six feet lower. And then another three feet lower, 10 feet away from there is a walkout basement. And all these things need to happen. On well, and the side, property side. line was about 13 feet from the house. Yeah, and it was, I mean, the grade, they built the house up so high, the grade was dumping into the neighbor's yard. And so There's they brought- this grand entrance yeah. to this alleyway. And I, we could you know, not wrap our- They brought us it. in, you know, as the house was built and they, in their minds, the whole- and It was still too late. Yeah, they're thinking all these <laughs> things are going to happen. And we had to communicate to them that, Hey, this isn't going to happen, and you need some serious retaining, and you need to do some. So, who did you bring? Training. Who would you bring that concern to first? That's what's tough because. Well, we brought it to the client because the did. client was the client was our client. Yeah. That was our. We were not working for the builder. But, we were but not would you? Would you have architect. before you had kind of gone that route? Would you have talked to the builder if you could have? Oh yeah, I think so. You get me like, hey, this is we brought in. Now you kind of negotiate and understand the the site and you get your bearings. Would it be? a good idea to bring the builder in and go, Hey, um, can you walk me through what you're planning here? Because if they've gotten that far, getting an understanding from basically all the people, like going back to the original thing about listening, it's not just the client we have to listen to. It's kind of everybody's understanding of what's happening to basically get the best information to go forward. Because, you know, the, the atmosphere that you guys create by being contracted by the client and then going back to the client with your findings, that then puts the whole project in a whole different dynamic because it's almost like the builder wasn't cheating, but wasn't totally honest about where he was Friday night with his, with his client, the girlfriend, you know, yeah, but I don't think, I don't think that was the case in this scenario because the, at this point they were, they were just looking for us to set elevations in that area. So, you know, the architectural yeah. drawings were already done. The builder is working off the assumption that this is going to work. So he's, because, as far as he knows, right, architect, as far as yeah, he knows yeah. he's doing what he's Civil supposed put it to on. Do. Right. Yeah. He knows what he, he thinks he's doing what he's supposed to do. And then, and then they bring us in to start establishing grades. So at that point, when gotcha. we're establishing grades, and I think the client at that point determined, well, this is how I actually want to use the space. Yeah, yeah. So I don't think they realized how they would have to use the space until they actually had a landscape plan from us. So I think it was, it was more, I think it was just more about a way to get out of the house that wasn't needed the way the architect had originally designed it because the client then changed how they were going to use that space. But I guess what I'm trying to understand is that client brought you guys in because their builder wasn't taking accountability for that anyways. They were like, yeah. I'm in the shell. Yeah. Yeah. I'll put this thing together. Yep. If you want to sort that out, you should find so-and-so to do so. Maybe. Well, that's what, I think that's what happened here. And this has yeah. happened to us a few times yeah. where the builder needs information about 
like I said, where, what's the deck elevation? Where's yeah. the step landing come on the outside of the house? And homeowners are like, I don't know. And then they come and find us. So it's interesting. Well, They're well, it's and, and a lot of times too, this has happened where for permitting purposes, a concept has been presented to whatever permitting board needed to see it. Mm -hmm. And then it's given to us to actually try to make it reality. And then you realize, well, you can't do that. So <laughs> these are just fun things. But that's so true though. I mean, you guys, you guys fit in that kind of area between civil engineer where they'll put on elevations. And a lot of times the guys that are doing the computer work haven't been to the site. They've, they've had their civil guys on the road do that. So they're doing it based off of Google Maps or whatever the architect's given them. So they're painting their own picture. You guys are the next step to that where, I mean, we rely heavily on the civil to give us elevation points to kind of use, but I don't, like Matt Sargent, my architect from Virginia, the one we're doing in Carlisle, they were like, I go, hey, I don't love the grades here. Like I'll go there with my own transit, get an elevation, you know, bring that across and cast it over where the top of wall will be and everything. And I'm like, oh, I don't love it. Good for, you, man, that, that Good for you, man. Good for you for doing that. I think I saw you post something to yeah. that effect. And I yeah. was like, yeah. yeah. But it's, I can understand the situation where we wouldn't do that. I would just put it in the ground, civil. And that's what happens a lot of time is we get a, a set of drawings back. Civil will give us an elevation. It's, I don't, do I ever ask where he came up with that? <laughs> like, it just whatever worked best on the numbers, I think. So, I mean, having you guys involved before we set a foundation would be kind of awesome. That's what I was getting at. Matt Sargent asked me the day. I, was, I, I then relate to him. I go, hey, if, if you saw this grading, if I brought it up two feet, like I want to be comfortable, meaning as the builder, we had an elevation like 168 and I, I put that, I put a, a 16 foot two by up and I marked that elevation on there so I could walk back and see it. And then I go, what happens if I hit water? Hypothetically would I be comfortable bringing this foundation up two feet just to keep it out of the water table if there is one? Because just it's rainy season was just behind us. And and I want to have that in my hand before we start digging hit water. <laughs> my decision-making at that moment is way different than a week in advance going, all right, thought about this. I can still work with that grade at all. It's great. Or I can split the difference, you know? Yep. And in that same time, I, I, we haven't started digging. So I then went back to Matt Sargent, my architect, and said, hey, what do you think of this? And he goes, yeah, I like that. And it's really, I'm looking for his concerns. Like, I don't want people to agree with me. I want to hear, hey, what do you think about this? That's why a podcast is so much fun because it's like, I have to explain myself and think about it as I'm explaining it going, is that right? right. Um, <laughs> always questioning what I'm thinking and then getting feedback. But you no, know, Matt would give me that. And then I went back to civil and said, hey, did you guys really think about this? Or did you guys just, did the associate put this on paper and print it for us? And they're like, oh no, we just printed it. So it's like trying to get an understanding of everything. And that way I can move forward. And Matt had asked me, he goes, do we have a landscape architect on this? I'm like, I don't know if we need one yet. And it's, and it's in my opinion right now is because I don't want to spend the money until I know I need to. And I know I have created enough cushion in the build, meaning foundations in, They've done whatever upgrades they need. The shell's done. They've picked their windows. I'm now at a point where in a renovation, if we go in and renovate a house and we have to demo it, there's a point where there's a contingency that's going to get used. It's during the demo and rebuild process where you find a rot, something's built wrong, a plumber cut out seven eye joists, whatever it is. Um, once you get past that, then it's, it's really flipped to now the client making those decisions and upgrades. But if it's 
at this point, it's like, I need to get the shell done. Once I get the shell done, now it's like I'm out of the ground, shell's done. Any landscaping you want, that's on you. It's not like an unforeseen. So I think, in my opinion, I'd bring in a landscape architect once we had the foundation in the ground with backfilled, you know, in my head. Well, hmm. <laughs> that's why I put it out there. Lay it on me. Well, no, I, I think... I think the ideal in an ideal world, when you have a new build, I think the landscape architect should be involved in siting the house in the very beginning. So not just setting the elevations, but siting the house because it is our, and, and I mean, I know this, no, is on me. this is like ideal world, right? We're, we're in a safe place. We're in the net. <laughs> is this a safe space? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I just think, so in an ideal world, we are involved from the very beginning. And when I say that, I mean, even from citing the space. So in an ideal world, we are working with the architect and the builder to figure out on that piece of land, what, is, what are we trying to accomplish? And then we're trying to work together to make that happen. And so I think that our strength, you know, I can tell you right now, house building architecture, for me personally, that is not my strength. That is not what I do. You put me outside and I can visualize a space like nobody's business. That's what I do. That's what I've dedicated my life to. So, you know, with that kind of vision, with what we're trained in, I just think that that's, that's the moment that we get brought on. And it's not like we're going to have a detailed plan right from the beginning, but to be there, to be able to cite things, to help with elevations right from the beginning, I think that's crucial. And I would say it almost never happens. Which yeah, I which yeah. I understand. So let me ask you this question, then I'll throw it back to you. Well, I John. also want to say we can save. Well, I I used to work in a civil engineering firm. I went to school for landscape architecture and actually worked in a firm. So that whole grading and drainage thing was like my real strength. So I believe we can save people money right from the beginning too. Certainly when it comes to drainage. So, you know, so when do you guys usually find yourselves coming into a project? Um, after it's built. Yeah, if, it, if, it's, if it's new construction, I mean, the structure's up, like you're saying in that scenario. And we do a lot of, I would say, the, in terms of new builds, the, the percentage of our new builds in our business is probably 10%. I mean, we're yeah. usually coming in because people are doing renovations yeah. and or they're just completely looking to renovate their space. Yeah. So I think in a way, because we're not, because so much of our experience is fixing things that are wrong, yeah. It's yeah. almost like it's almost natural to walk into new builds and be like, okay, here we go again. Well, you can almost see it right <laughs> away. So the, the, the one that we are finalizing now, um, there was a garage on top of another garage. Okay. So explain you, for our listeners. Okay. So you pull, <laughs> you pull into the driveway into your, your first floor garage and yeah. immediately underneath that, is a walkout grade garage. You, you drive around so yeah. on, this, to the walkout. on this facade, John, you have two bays. And then right below it on the facade on that 90 degree angle turn, you have two bays. Mm. And immediately I walk onto the site and I'm like, well, you need about 12 feet worth of retaining right here. And the house has to be built up with like six inches of structural fill and all this compaction needs to happen. And they really hadn't thought much about it because nobody wanted to think about it. Right. And the homeowner the whole time to me saying, you know, I didn't even really need this garage. And they, they, they went through a lot of effort 
to actually raise the first floor elevation to get that garage at the second floor elevation. So it was, it was really, it was an interesting exercise to communicate with the homeowner what needed to happen and the builder and not tick the builder off and make yeah. it like the builder didn't think it through where I think he realized he needed something. He just didn't want to deal with it because they were building the house at that moment. And there were no numbers. There was no, there was nothing in the budget to even to deal with it whatsoever. And I saw it right away and I'm like, well, you know, that's, that's whatever, tens of thousands of dollars to make this happen, you know? <laughs> so it's interesting to be put in that scenario when you talk about communication. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I think people do put that in their back burner or it's on, I think it's that gray area where people don't know who's accountable for it. Yes. You know, cause you think, yes. you think civil's got it cause it's on the prints, I'll do that. And then once it starts to take shape at rough, rough grading, and then it then comes to mind. I mean, I'm not gonna lie to you. Ten years ago, I probably did a lot of that. That was probably my system. Okay, is start grading it, going, all right, this doesn't work. What do we do? And then you know, kick it to the, you know, you, I know a lot of guys will will push it to their their site guy, and ask okay. their yes. site guy yes. what they yeah. do. Yep. You know, what do you do here? Or we'll bring in your landscaper, your whoever does hardscape or softscape. What do you think we should do here? Mm -hmm. Almost make it like a a community effort of what what are the everyone's. And at that point, I don't think you're a GC. To be honest with you, if you're going to take everyone else's opinion on a situation like that and not have something to bring to the table, then you should be paying each one of those people for their opinion and then they become accountable for it. Gotcha. You know, so you're the one that's accountable. I have a hard time with the way things get built nowadays by a lot of people. Mm. So, yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. All right. So let me so ask you then. Um, so, what is your view then on the relationship between the landscape and a structure? So what, how do you see that relationship? Do you see it as something that is important? Do you yes. bring that up to your clients? What is your kind of philosophy on how the landscape and the structure should blend together? Um, it also depends on, on the actual where it is and what you're looking at. Because I think it goes both ways. I think when you pull up to the house and the presence that the landscape, you know, the, the landscape has to guide you. You know, like like we, I'll, I'll do a video or, or a post next week on the walkway at our big house in Dover that, you know, we could, like the farmer's porch leads you to the, the, the driveway, but the landscape architect did a great job with this, solid. They brought the walkway out into the front because there's a beautiful architecture. It's unbelievable, the front mm -hmm. of it. You never see it. And yeah. if you simply went to the short end of the farmer's porch, you would never have gotten that moment where you turn and you see the front door. That's double door and the dormer out front and you get a little bit of peak of the chimney. That's done by the hardscape which is the landscape design. Mm -hmm. Not if it was just me, I may not. As a builder, there's only so many things we have for a bandwidth to be able to do. And I would love to be able to be a master builder where you're, you're encompassing everything. The only way to do that nowadays is to bring in individual expert, experts to these different areas because your main focus is just that. That view. Right. It, it's the same as being a carpenter and having a great hammer or a great screwdriver. Having a great landscape architect will give you that benefit of making that you're supposed to create little moments in a design, meaning when you walk up to the front door for someone for the first time, what are they experiencing? What are they mm -hmm. getting? A lot of times we get to a point where you're in a house and it's like, I'm just going to the front door. It is what it is. Yes, it's where you drop it. off packages. Yeah, yeah. It just It is. But how do you want that to go? And that can be steered by landscaping, softscape, yeah. how you want plants, how you can hide that initial peak at the front door by a few trees. 
And then vice versa, it's also, I tell a lot of clients that we do usually wait a little bit. And the reason why is like a client just yesterday, she's like, hey, that red house next door, we cleared four acres. The red house next door is super obvious. I think she goes, I went online, wholesale landscaper. We can get like 30 evergreens for over there. And I'm like, pump the brakes. Okay. <laughs> let's look at it. I know what you're looking at right now and I see how obvious it is, but I go, let's look at it from a couple different vantage points. The finished grading when it's done, when you're inside your master suite looking out windows, what do you see? When you pull up through the front yard, what do you see from, there's multiple angles you have to think about, not just the one that's obvious in front of us. Right. So I think that's usually also why I wait a little bit. I can trust myself on grading, I gotcha. but I think anyone that's listening that is a builder, that GC or whatever, if you're not comfortable with any of this stuff, and I don't think you should be comfortable with a, a civil engineer doing it for you and thinking it out or leaving it to your site guy, it's really hiring someone like you guys, maybe not doing the whole package, but breaking a sliver off to understand grading and all that. And then bringing, right. do you guys find yourself being brought in for little bits and pieces or do you want the whole thing? Uh, we, we, we get brought in on phases as needed, the initial grading, well, we refine that, well, but we do get the whole the project. We I do mean, the whole design, but we, we do it in stages, you know, piggybacking what's happening on the site. So I have um, finished loam grade right now, hydro seating starting next week, and then two weeks later we have finished driveway coming in. Yeah, so obviously um, it depends on the scope of the project, but certainly there's the ideal is to get to that master plan which gets whittled right. down in phases as things become more concrete for everybody. So on the project that we're on right now, I mean, it took us months and months to get to the planting plan because that's kind of the final part right. of it because we still had to see how everything was going to kind of come together based on our planning. Um, but I, I did want to get back to something that you said, though, because I do appreciate the fact you know, particularly to, you know, I talk about bringing us in right away, <laughs> but at the same time, whenever we've had clients that have moved into new homes um, and are looking to bring us in, I always tell them to actually wait, <laughs> which hate, is like, why I, would I, I not take this. their money right away? <laughs> but I'm like, you know, you really need to live here and you need to understand how you're going to use this space. And there's no way, I mean, I've had people who've literally, literally called us a week after they've moved in. And I'm kind of like, you have no idea right now how you want to use this space. Which is tough from a sales perspective because you want to strike while the iron's hot. So we actually, we disagree on this at times where I'm like, well, I mean, let's go. The, let's the, tough, part, the tough part is, <laughs> I think that that's why they hire you guys as the professional, mm. is that you can walk in that house and, and troubleshoot what they are going to see. You are their line of sight. You're just take, if it was me, and we called you in for that, I would want your perspective because you're going to cut down on that time frame. meaning you're going to know what a tree looks like. Like I said to the client, I go, we could do it tight if you want immediate privacy, or we can plant them three feet apart, and over the next two years, they'll grow together. It, you guys will know that information. Oh, sure. You know, that like, hey, if you go here, let's do a river birch that will have three trunks, and that will get your, your height that you need to cover all that. And then in the winter, you know, what will you see? But I think they'll be able to. You'll be able to show them what they can't see, and that shows a huge amount of value. I think yeah. the hardest part with what you guys do is showing value, where it doesn't feel like you're creating value by fear. Meaning, do you have all this thought out? How about this? Do you have that thought out? Do you have this thought out? I don't think you do. Like this is all things that create fear. 
that then someone goes, all right, I'll get into this. And the scary part is in like the Greg Lombardi's of the world, but actually they don't install, but like, how do you, how do you price check the work that you guys have? Like, you know, like when you design it, it's like, how do you know that if we want to value engineer this, is it just cutting scope or is it changing materials? Like, that's why I bring in, like, we have different masons. We have some guys do softscapes, some guys do hardscapes, some guys do vertical, some guys do chimneys. So we're able to bid all those guys against each other and create the best value. And I'll source, like, granite curbing. I got that for $10 a foot, you know, instead of 50 It's uh, It's like, how do I know I'm going to get that from you guys as a package? Well, I think that... First of all, there's always a relationship that has to get built up with your client. So right away, you have to get them to trust you that you have their best interests in mind. So to a point, it's all about trust. So what we always do is we go in and we present the best design for what they're asking for, for what their space is. And then we give them the pricing based on that. And then we always come to them and say, okay, if you can't do this part, then we can switch to this material. Or if we lose this part of the design, we still have the structure of the design is in place. So what and we, we also, we also um, logically phase our plan so that if they want to tackle one particular area in one season, we can come back in two years and logically install another area to get them to that master plan scenario that they want, which has like been mm-hmm. a really big selling point for us. And I, help, I think that builds up trust as well. Um, but we'll do it in such a manner where, you know, we'll really iron it out for them. Like, yeah, we can build this now and we can do this later and we're not going to disturb X, Y, and Z in the process and make it logical for you. And I think that really has helped us build up trust for sure. Right. But I think to John, I think John, your point is because on your end, you're able to, like you said, source these different materials and bid people against each other. How do you know that you're getting the best out of us or how does our client know that they're getting the best out of us? And so, cause a lot of times it, it is, you guys will, will not take a, a, a really big fee for design because it'll be compounded into the construction of landscape. Well, we used to do that. Yeah, no. So I would say that I think that we're unique in that we, we basically look at our design as being its own division and the construction as being its own division. So design has to fairly well sustain itself. Um, and not that it does entirely, but we finally have gotten to a point where we charge what we need to charge for design and then the build is its own thing. So, you know, when we first started, we would credit back part of the design fee or do something like that. And that just kind of became ridiculous because messy. Yeah. In theory, in theory, okay, maybe we would tack it onto the construction, but I never remembered to do that. And I never felt (laughs) good about doing that, you know? So I would rather just be upright up front and say, this is what it's going to cost for the because, design portion because we, of things. Because we think it's worth it. So we're trying to communicate that as well. And, and well, I think... It's almost necessary. Yeah. You can't, you can't do anything without the design. Right. And you're also... It's also been a great way to kind of evaluate who's serious about building with us. So if they're open to the design fee, then we know, okay, we've, we've evaluated where they're at and, and their seriousness. They're invested building. in the process. Yeah. And, and then so through that, true. It's through like that an process for us. 
Yeah. If, they, if they've hired a good architect, like we have it right now. Okay. Yeah. Website contact <laughs> that if you, do you have an architect? And if they say no, then I know that they are not committed to the project yet. Right. Because they haven't invested the 10, 15, 50 K mm -hmm. it takes for that design. So that $500,000 budget that they put in isn't that enticing because they don't have all the all pieces. Gotcha. They've right. showed, that, yeah, they're not vested in the project yet. Right. Yeah. yeah. So once once we've developed that relationship with them as the designer, we've already established a level of trust. And then I think our work kind of speaks for itself, too. So, you know, I'm not going to go to three different stone yards to price out bluestone. I have someone I like to work with. I have vendors that I trust that have quality material. I'm going to use their price point and that's going to get rolled into right. our pricing, which is why I think we're not we're not really built to work in your scenario with builders in that we're, we're just not, it, that's just not our, it's just not the way we're organized. Dude, I would love it. If, 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 if it worked and I knew that it was, I was getting the comparable price, you know, structure I was getting right now, mm -hmm. price point, I would love to have that a la carte. Gotcha. Option. Yeah. Yep. Like instead that's, I don't know how many less people it's to manage. Oh, <laughs> like, I know. I can't well, imagine. Well, because we take care of all that. Yeah. Like, yeah. We do that. We manage right. our own projects. I would help, just be God checking in us. with you. Yeah. <laughs> so so one of the builders in our area, and they, they do a lot of work. Um, it's funny. <laughs> he, we do, we've done work for him personally and his business partner on their properties. And then they just refer us, which is, which is funny. They, they don't actually bring us in to, to work under them for whatever reason. They just refer us to their clients on on particular projects that they think you know we're we're worthy of, but um or that our aesthetic fits. Yeah, right yeah, on. yeah. They, they, he's just he just doesn't want to deal with the outside. So that that's been kind of a cool relationship. But um, but then if they do something wrong, John, I'm in a situation where I got to tactfully take care of it. Right. And <laughs> I can't look like a bonehead, and I don't want to make him look bad. So it's man, it's funny and. It's um, one thing I'll say about the podcast and listening to your podcast is um, and I didn't know going in. I knew this would be would sat be satisfying because I like to talk. Um, but I've learned so much about just talking about what we do, about how to communicate better and how to like how to how to self evaluate what we're doing. Um, not only on a daily basis, but like where we're headed in 10 years. I don't know if you you found the same thing. Well, it's, it's even listening, re-listening to your podcast. Yeah. Like when mm. you, when you publish one and you listen to it, you're like, wrong question, wrong time. Right. Uh, like, that's why I, like you have, you have your notes, but I still have like my notebook, mm -hmm. like even when I'm on a podcast. So if I like, if we start going down a road, I'm like, I really wanted to ask this, but it didn't slide in at the right time. It's really tough. Yep. Especially in our podcast where we have three hosts. Yeah. Where, yeah. You know, and it's, it's great because. You know, Tyler, who is more of the hands-on carpenter and that still runs a business at a very, very high level. Mm -hmm. I think he's probably the highest level out of all of us. And then Nick, who's managing a massive team with super high level, and me, who is a more of a boutique, smaller firm, you get all the gamuts, meaning all the different size companies, how you run them, what you do, and even the tool belt on or tool belt off type of mentality in one conversation. Um, but they definitely turn very quickly yeah <laughs> well, well, you, you, you guys have different personalities i was listening to you talk to nick um you're almost giving him a pep talk on the one i was listening to yesterday i think it was called tyler mentality it was interesting because he was talking about wanting to um i think it was buy a brownstone and remodel it yeah you, remodel you, you, you it, were yeah. kind of 
you're kind of pushing them to be like, hey, man, if you want to do it, this is what you got to do. And you're almost, you were like building them up. It was interesting to hear. I like what it. we do, man. You guys That's are real. Yeah, but you guys are real introspective. And what I find interesting too is um, the reason I said you're a badass is because on one of them, you were talking, this is a while ago, because I bounce around on your show because I, I discovered it late and there's so many episodes. Is um, it weird that I'm already embarrassed? <laughs> are you blushing? You haven't even started. Are you no, blushing? But you you, you kind of... I, re- I regret what I say. No, 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 no. But you, you said something about a client and this, this particular woman was making some decisions that you didn't agree with. And I was like, man, I want to get to that level on this podcast where I... You, you, like, like you didn't seem, you didn't seem afraid to say like what was on your mind that week and what was bothering you. And I'm thinking like, if the client's listening, does he care? Like, like what is that dynamic? Like, I mean, that's for you. I don't know. I don't know if it's cause I'm 40 and now I just don't care anymore, but it's like, it, it, it's the reality of it. I do have a lot of clients that listen, um, and subs, even employees. Yeah. I, I noticed that. Cause you, you'll have this train of thought, you'll be rambling and you'll say, You'll start talking about an employee and you'll stop. And I've noticed Nick does this too. And you'd be like, okay, he listens to the podcast. Yep. And then you take a breath and then you explain yourself. <laughs> yeah, it, it's funny. It, it's, it's, the podcast is really tough because you get listeners' opinions and in that, like how you don't decide, if you go over something super quick, mm-hmm. like that you and I understand, but yet the client, the, the, uh, not the client, but even the client, um, I'll talk really fast for a client and be like, how much of that went over your head? And same thing with the listeners. So you find yourself asking ridiculous questions that you know the answer to, but it's not for you at that point. Right. right. Which right. is re- it's really tough because you want the conversation, like this conversation, to be amongst three pros that just have dialogue, not so much for the listeners. When we started the podcast, we wanted to be like a mix of Joe Rogan's like fight compilation where they might go from who killed JFK to like what the market is right now or they might be smoking weed, whatever it yep, is, but yep. it's kind of just you're in the room with a bunch of people. Yeah. And we want to create a podcast where you're in the room with a bunch of pros. What yeah. are they talking about? Yep. And if that means we're talking about Justin Fink's new baby, then that's how we break in the podcast. Because a lot of people we have on the podcast get really self-conscious yeah. in front of three pros. And right. I mean, we've eaten up a few people by accident. <laughs> Um, and it's you try to loosen them up right away though and, and make uh, feel- well we stopped like saying we're starting to record record now we just record yeah and then yeah, we yeah. start the podcast yeah. and then if it's junk in the beginning puff who edits it uh puff media he does all our podcasts and everything he's great um he will then cut it out and then let us go but at that point they're comfortable but as soon as you go hey we're recording they're like there's that we joke and say there's only five people that listen and that way they, they don't really feel self-conscious, but it is really weird because it's not like the, the Joe Rogans and the Dak Shepherds of the world where whoever they have on has a purpose, has a voice. A lot of people will have on yeah. just aren't comfortable at that moment. They either get insecure or even sometimes I'll get like the imposter syndrome where I'm like, should I be the voice for this? Like, should I be the guy that's, that's dialing in this part of the market? Uh-huh. And, it, it, and I, I think it's healthy. I just, some days I wish it was just not in the top of my brain. Okay. Uh, yeah. I could, just, I could be a regular dude having a conversation about what I love. And that's where I've tried to pivot it towards where I don't care what the review is that we get. Right. I don't care Good. who says it. They should hear it. And it's kind of this um, neutral area that they can hear it on. You know? I'd love to go a little philosophical for a minute and talk a little bit about 
branding versus projects that you're building. So again, one of the podcasts we just listened to of yours got us really thinking about what our brand is and what kind of projects we want to be building. Mm -hmm. And when do you say no? And how do you say no? And are there repercussions for saying no Mm. or doing projects that, that don't fit your brand? So I think that you were talking about, um, well, you want to kind of talk about this a little bit. It was a conversation that I think Nick was having about some project he wanted to take on. It was a commercial project where his team essentially turned to him and said, why are we doing this? We have awesome projects going on right now. They're the projects that we want. And he talked about the fact that he just needed his team to tell him, hey, what are you doing? We don't need this right now. And he also, he also talked about, I think, knowing the person that owned the property or managed it and having this kind of um, intimate connection and, and wanting to kind of do the project for that reason. But just the fact that that project w- wasn't on brand for him. And then you were talking about a project, I believe it was in Cambridge, where it was some contemporary builds where um, it seems like initially you got excited about but then you start to kind of take a step back and think about your actual logo, like your sign in front of this structure being built and how it wasn't on point. But just that whole process of how you got to that over that maybe initial excitement. Because I think you were talking about maybe creating a whole other division to kind of manage that style build. Is that something that you're dealing with internally? Is that something you're, obviously you have your business partner, Ben, that you guys cycle through? And at what moment do you feel, you know, good about saying, maybe this is a tremendous opportunity fiscally, but it's not on brand. It's not something I'm interested in. You walk away. I think it's, it's, it's always on, on our mind all the time, whether it's, it's what do we want for long-term? Our long-term is to be with like, honestly a half a dozen architects Mm -hmm. that give us two to three jobs over a two-year process that's all we want okay um and that's we both agree on that the the cambridge stuff that we're doing the modern ones are really cool it's just like when you look at it from that thousand foot view or 30 foot view thirty thousand foot view is you know what are we going to get out of that project we're going to get the same developer every time okay like ideally a good product for us is where whether a client brings us in or an architect brings us in, we then, we had the client fall in love with us. The architect already loves us. There's an interior designer and maybe a landscape architect involved. The goal is to take all four relationships out of that original one relationship. You get me? So your, your brand and in, in your, your network is increasing, you know, 400 times, 300 mm-hmm. times over that whole right. that makes sense. process. Mm-hmm. Not, it, it's the same as like my architect, Matt Sargent in, in Ireland. He's out of Kentucky. No, sorry. He's out of, um, Virginia and it's like he can't reciprocate a project to me so is, is that it's I get great designs out of it but is it smart long term to keep that type of relationship as 90% of the designs that come out of vintage you know or I'm turning into a design build so I'm gonna have to control all that so it's really I'm feeding the machine mm. not being fed by you know an, an architect that we did an, an awesome job with that we get a referral from like we have one that's a Patrick Ahern job that's coming up the goal is that they're happy. They give us more work. Another one's a Jacob Lilly project we have. Same thing. That way, I'm going to get leads that are client-based, that if they're a good fit, then I'll, I'll kick it to one of those architects. Gotcha. Or vice versa. So it, it is 
that question is very, very deep and there's lots of edges to it because it's not an easy thing and we're thinking about it all the time. The Cambridge one in particular is there's nothing vintage about it. Like Are you talking about scroll, the level of detail that no, you're allowed to the, go to? the level or? of detail, execution will always be there. Okay. Or you won't no take matter it what. Yep. All right. But but the overall essence of vintage was we wanted to people when we came up with the idea was if you like I live in an old house in, in Sherborne. Like it's probably early nineteen hundreds or late eighteen hundreds. And most people will pass on a pro, a house like that, just in general. Like to raise their kids in it because it's leaky, it's not efficient. You'll probably have to burn oil. There's a lot of things that come to mind that that are going to change the level of comfort in that home just for the ambiance, right? Mm-hmm. That it's like, ah, is it worth it? I love it, but uh, I'll deal with the speck on the street. There's a vinyl siding I can just power wash <laughs> yeah. instead, of, instead of lead paint. You know, yeah. I mean, let's be honest. So in, in essence, the, the character of all of new homes are being inspired and dictated by the market of what's sold for the most money in the area, not what historic right, details right. were there from right. a, a master builder that came up with his own pattern book that kept doing certain details that gave him a signature across the land. Um, and we were like, there's this company called Icon Bronco, Icon 4x4. It's a Bronco company. They make old Broncos. My dream is like a 62 or 66 Bronco. Those are cool. You know, and these guys were like, I've dealt with a lot of these clients that buy these old cars and go, hey, you know, it really smells. I'm like, that's called like the essence of an old car. <laughs> Oil and gasoline. It's like, it's running rich. And then it's too bumpy. It's all this stuff. So, you know, Icon saw this. Jonathan was like, hey, I'm going to take that old car. I'm going to take it apart. Boof blow it apart so all the pieces are just taken apart i'm going to put in every piece of modern suspension braking engine you know led electronics but then when you put it back together when it drives by it looks like the same bronco mm. but yet it drives smooth mm-hmm. it always starts mm-hmm. it has all that so why don't we do that with houses that's a great so analogy. you talk yeah structure mechanical everything's on point yeah it's it's you're not you're not putting your kids through hell with whatever asbestos lead all the stuff that's in that formaldehyde, all that stuff that's in the house, let's do it with them. And you have super comfort. Like I can knock down a house right now that's an older house, put up something with just as much character or more, and it have half the utility bill that the original house did that's smaller. Okay. Like that is awesome. Mm-hmm. So why why don't we do that? So if that's the model that we came up with in the name and the style and the brand from the old F100 that's not driving to like the logo and everything that we have, does that modern house fit into that brand? And that the execution is never in question, but does it fit? When it goes on the website, when we build it, does it fit in? Or is it just something that we want to appeal to? Mm-hmm. You know, that's the question that we do all the time. It's like, or do we have a different division that does modern? And we had the same discussion about vintage development. The specs that we do that are more development-based, that are, that are more for the general market, should those be part of the branding of vintage builders? But generally speaking, can't the word vintage be used to mean <clears throat> kind of like quality of the past? So True. why can't it, uh, why can't these more contemporary buildings fit still into that brand if you're looking at it as vintage being more symbolic of the quality craftsmanship of the past that you don't quite see as often now? It's a it's a it's a pivot that you'd have to make for it. I just don't know if it's as clean of a line you know it's the same as doing a, a modern interior you get me like it, you you're right it would have to be the execution i just think that like the way the script is 
of vintage builders in front of this modern house. Trevor, one of our PMs, just did a video yesterday, and that's exactly what went through my mind. I was like, God, the sign looks so off. It's such a, a sleek building, you know? And, it, you know, and a few architects come to mind. I mean, let's just be honest. Patrick Ahern, one of the, the top New England designers, even the U.S., he's really took hold of the oh, yeah. New England yeah. kind of classic design. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. But he do modern? No. He doesn't right. need to. Right. right. So going right. back to the original design, is that modern a thing that's part of necessity for paying the bills and it's a cool it's a cool project and it's a it's an opportunity or is it something we want to do long term because i don't know about you guys but i feel like you fall into these niches when i was younger it's like you do one garage knockdown and put up another one you did garage knockdowns for the next two years yeah and then you you know okay yeah yeah, this this rolls into what i think you were leading into yeah so it's it's amazing that you bring that up because my next question um god there's so many parallels between our, our industries and what we do and what we're going through. Cause our next question was definitely, you know, how do you keep the traje- the trajectory of the quality and kind of the creative work going either upwards or kind of plateauing and maintaining because what's been happening to us lately is, and I'm sure there are a lot of reasons for it, but it feels like lately we've been getting more, I think what we would call project uh, production jobs as opposed to those more creative artistic jobs that we're actually known for. And we're kind of trying to figure out why are we kind of dipping now in, I won't say the quality because anything we build is going to be high quality, but certainly the creative and the, you know, the higher end materials, like why are we kind of starting to see a dip in that when really we're trying so hard to put ourselves out there to be constantly climbing? Yeah. Or cause uh, we'll get, Every year or two, we'll get, for us, a, a relatively large job where, um, and we've had a few of them, they're, they're, the clients will let us basically have at it. They have total trust in us, and we're able to execute on all the details that I like to do, you know, get stone fabricated for specific things, the fun stuff that we love, and we see that trajectory going up. And then, you know, we might level off for a few jobs, and then we'll peak up a little bit more, peak up a little bit more, but I just, we've had a few like you were saying, we've done a few more production things lately. Um, going back to having like an intimate kind of feel for like what Nick was talking about in his podcast with this connection with that, that job that wasn't right for them. We had one with a particular client who was a past client. We like her. They bought a new house. They needed this project done. We took it on, but we had to really shave down materials, um, the, the, the materials that we believe in yeah, we ended up with a material what? selection that, we, yeah. that we don't believe in that all. could generally lead to many other problems. Maintenance and issues and accessibility later on should something go wrong. And got a text recently that it did lead to the exact problem that we feared. It turns out it actually wasn't a problem at all and everything worked out. But it really made us stop and go, we can't, we can't do that anymore. Like we cannot yeah, that, go well, down. Well, that's the obvious one. Yeah. That's definitely the obvious is like, we had a client in Medfield that we were doing a design for. And I was like, we'll do the design so that we are not stuck with getting their design from the walls. Mm-hmm. Meaning that it's just going to be whatever boilerplate. We'll design something really cool that you can then price out that we probably won't be a fit for. Just, mm-hmm. just okay. in general. Yeah. And, and, it, and I, but the problem is I was torn. Like I want to do, as Kevin O'Connor said, you can't do them all. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, I, and I, I really have a hard time with that. I do. Like if you've, contacted me and it's like how do you do this i try and 
figure out how to make it work. But to be honest with you, that house was like, all right, we can't afford the Marvin windows that we always do. We have to do like a vinyl or something like that, where it's like a, a Matthew Brothers or Harvey. Great product still, but it's not something that that it's going to hold up as well. Gotcha. Meaning when you put in all the trim and all the details, it's crazy to say, but that window will stick out. You know, it's it's the same as when we do a house and someone goes, you know, I'll tell them right off the bat, you're probably, oh, probably light on electrical. Like the lighting, decorative lighting. Once you see everything in place, you won't go to the normal places to buy lighting. You'll have to buy something very, right. very beautiful. Right. And it sounds weird, but it will make sense when we get there. Um, but yeah, it, you have to, I lost my train of thought, but it, you, the client, like they wanted to put in vinyl windows. They wanted to do a different type of kitchen. They wanted to do appliances that weren't the norm for us. Mm -hmm. And at that point, if I took a photo of it, it's kind of super thousand foot view, but would it look like one of our products Right. at mm -hmm. that point? And right. the answer is no. So I, I don't need to battle in nickel and dime myself right. to yeah. make something happen for somebody that they don't value it. Yes. You know, and, yeah. and that's the <laughs> biggest problem is that they wouldn't value it. They don't get it. And there's, I think the biggest thing we need to think about is our opportunity costs. You know, is your time being spent the right way? And that could be as simple as being home with your kids. Right. And not, or putting together an amazing project. And I think we all have this fear that that amazing product is not going to come. So yes. I'll take this one. Yes. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a reality to every situation. I, you know, you know, people aren't exactly banging down our doors. <laughs> so, you know, there is always that reality that we have two kids, we have a mortgage, we have employees. And so if I say no to this, is there going to be something else down the road? And I will say that this season, which in the middle of pandemic may not be the best decision, but <laughs> I've been saying no to people because I'm practicing saying no. So yeah. I've been saying no to projects that don't fit the scope of what I think we need to do because I keep thinking to myself now, even if we, for some reason, didn't have work down the road, then I am going to take that time and I am going to do all the marketing things I should be doing right now. Yeah, treat like, it like an I'm going to be doing things to make sure that we are getting ourselves out there. So I'm practicing saying no, but I think something that you were saying earlier, John, which kind of struck me is that I think maybe one of the reasons, one of the ways to kind of keep that upward motion, you were talking about all the relationships that you're forming with these certain set of architects or these certain set of designers. So I think that that's kind of the key is forming those relationships with the people that can kind of help you move along in the trajectory that you want to go. But I, I even think it's beyond that. Like you saying, no, I have a hard time with it. I'd rather I've had this, this whole thing of trying to dig deeper for a better inventory of options that I can then refer people to. Yes, like yes, so, okay. yes. Yeah. I've been doing you know, that as well. Yeah. Yes, yes. But we're not we're not great fit for you, but you should contact these guys. And what happens? What you're building there? It sounds like it's a frivolous waste of time to di to divert somebody to somebody else. It's called brand awareness. Is that your brand is being talked about by multiple levels and different tiers? And if someone says, "Hey, I got this job from you guys," and it just wasn't the right fit, so what they know now, the either the client, the people doing the work, or whoever it is that knows about that product knows that this isn't a project for you and there's another caliber above that. Mm -hmm. So that awareness, mm -hmm. that brand awareness that you're at a different level That's interesting. is so much bigger than, hey, we're not the right fit. And that client then moves on and you're never spoken of again. Gotcha. You know, it's, it's having that awareness and even like suppliers is going, hey, I do this and I, I tag everyone I possibly can because then people can go to them and go, hey, I bought that. And I've had a lot of guys go to me and go, 
Johnny's really spending that much money on, you know, granite or like, cause they go and like call the same guy and go, I want to do the same thing. It's like, that's how much it is. Wow. But it, it's the fact that it's, they're doing it on their own terms. And that could be clients. That could be anybody. It's really opening the book to all the secrets because it takes more than just having the right subs and right network. It's that drive, the communication, the passion and the soul that you pour into it that really makes this success. And I'm not calling anybody out, but if you can do all that, you will be successful no matter what someone hands you. But a lot of people won't put that effort in. They'll work a couple hours a day. Let's right. be honest. It's not a full eight. I mean, I looked at last night where I'm like, geez, I got to 12 hours. I'm like, that was just a normal day where the majority of people went home early on a Friday because it was a long weekend. I was yeah, just like, yeah, yeah. one more stop. And it just, that's the effort that we put in. And that question I get all the time is, when do you have time for this stuff? And it's like, you know what? I'll probably die when I'm early, probably 60. It's where I look at things. And it's like, I want to be able to put in everything I can that I feel like I'm comfortable every day, that I've put everything I can into it and I'm happy. So uh, how, how much time are you putting into your IG? And uh, you must have someone that's coming in and doing the filming with you. I mean, no, vid no you're doing that. I'm doing all that. Yeah. You're a madman. I, I, set, I set it all up with my GoPro and then... The drones? Yeah. The drone shots? Yeah, I do the drones. I do the drones. I do the GoPro. I do it with my phone. Uh, and then I, I have delegated all the editing to Pixel. Okay. Great. So um, what percentage of your job is social media any given uh, week? It, I mean, I, I mean, I don't even... It, to me, it's like breathing. It's just, it's doing it at, at any given time where I'll be with my family and they'll be even my in-laws and I'll do a post and I'll be with them the whole time. And then they'll read it later on. They go, when did you post that? I'm in the same room with them. And it's just, that's the tricky part is having that divide because like my 13 year old's always on his phone and I'm like, bro, you're going to be addicted to that thing by necessity when you're older. Don't be glued to it now. Yeah, like, he's like, but dad, you have like 40,000 followers on Instagram. Yeah, but he, he's like, you're like, on it. I'm like, well, how do you I'm going to take an hour and, and post something or really write something or I'm going to post something on both accounts and then go back over the Modern Craftsman and then repost whatever stories come up. Nick does the posting now on Modern Craftsman, which is so much better. Okay, yeah, yeah, he, yeah. He's, he's a great one to ask because I don't know how he finds time. Oh, he does a lot, I, yeah. He, he does an amazing amount of stuff that's kind of peripheral, meaning he does an amazing amount of stuff that's, devoted to execution of his business and his product, mm -hmm. but to find time to put up the content that he does at the level he does with two small kids at home. You know, I, I, I envy the kid, but I'm also like, in my mind, I would do one last post or two last posts. We talk about all the time and get another invoice done. Oh, yeah. 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 You know, I mean, that, that's where I have a hard time or get home and organize or mow the lawn, you know, stuff like that. So I do, I am not as, it doesn't help that I have two accounts with here's Johnny and, and vintage. So every time I post, I post on both. Mm. So it's, if I was just running one account, it'd be better. But the goal was that we take vintage and we show all the integrate details and post a lot more finished photos there. Okay. And yep. we take here's Johnny and, and try and push people to vintage. Okay. You know? Through your personality. Yeah. Well, more, more through your personality. And I have to say, um, I'm quite jealous because <laughs> for vintage to only exist as a company for three years the fact that it has twenty four thousand followers is kind of like mind-boggling to me but it's amazing too so your personal your more personalized account has more so it's people like seeing 
the man behind the mask, you know, behind the scenes and, yeah. and, and what it, it it's 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 fun to watch. It's definitely fun to watch. Um, and it, it's a bummer that I don't do it as much as I used to. Like I have my my wife's was cousin. He's like, you stopped doing videos. I'm like, I haven't had the time. He goes, that's what made you. Mm. And I was like, oh man, I took like a stab in the heart that day. <laughs> yeah, but like, at the same time, are you not? I mean, I mean, social media is only so much in your life. You know what I mean? Like, you may not yeah. be doing videos, but maybe you're with your kids more. Like you said, maybe you're invoicing. Like, there, yeah. it can't be everything for everyone. I, Neil and I kind of yeah, it's, <laughs> we well, butt well, heads a little so bit about this because there's only so much time in the day, and you have to figure out. Where is your brain power? Where is your presence best? But I kind of, I kind of look at it. I, I kind of enjoy it because I'll think of something on a site or something I want to show someone, and I'm like, all right, it's it's kind of a cool exercise. So for me to communicate that through either yeah. a stand up or writing it out, and it's 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 like a little bit of therapy in a way. It's weird. I, I, it's hard. I, the toughest part is like Tyler said it the best with me is is his view of me is that every time I try and maximize every second. So if I'm at a red light, I'll open up drafts and I'll finish that post that I was writing up and then I'll save it for later because mm-hmm. I know I don't want to post it at noon. No, you won't Wednesday. because you're focused on driving <laughs> and both hands are on the wheel. <laughs> no, right? I'm saying at a red light where you're stopped and you're <laughs> yeah, like, well, oh, but you're light. still in the car. Yeah, yeah, I'm trying to, I'm trying I, to I do, do this every <laughs> second I can. It's, it's crazy that, it, or if I, I make a note and I'll be like, oh, yeah, that's a great post. I'll take that photo and I'll start that post and use drafts a lot. Yeah. Or like a lot of my hashtags and all that stuff's all saved in notes. Yeah. But it's cut over, grab that. So it is, like I said, it's it's almost like a bad habit where I bite my fingernails. You can look at it that way where I'm on social media too much. But I also pull a ton of design ideas from social. That's true, yeah. Like, yeah. like where clients are like, hey, I, I'm looking at this and I'll scroll through it. I have so many screenshots that I'll send to a client and go, hey, this is the entryway for this job. And she's like, "You're in, yes, like 100 yeses via text back. And I'm like, wow, done. Nice. So both ends of it, meaning I find, and I think we, for Nick and Tyler, it, it, it's we are hitting a couple different um, audiences, meaning we're hitting potential clients that may watch for years and then decide to pull the trigger with you on a big ticket. I mean, most of our builds are 900,000 to, you know, 4 million. So it's like those people aren't going to be someone who just started following you today mm-hmm. and then right. pull the trigger tomorrow. Right. Mm-hmm. They're going to want to get to know you and feel comfortable with you that your story has not changed from day one to month two mm. to year two. Um, that, consistency, that, that holds a lot yeah. of value with people. Yeah. Got and that. Then, yeah. And then you have client, you have people that are in the industry that want to learn from you and that they respect you and they, they get inspired by your energy and your execution and, and the flaws that you present. I think I've hit all my questions. Yeah. I mean, I, I could go on. I know. I think I we could. could go on and on and <laughs> I think on. we could do this all day, um, but at some point, we got to let you get back so, to your life. Yeah, make a statement everywhere. You made. That's you had a line. post on that, and that was awesome. That was just a, just a window well, but it was this beautiful stonework that you guys are executing, and um, you know, you're making a statement on Instagram. Um, oh, you're, with your you're, work. Yeah, you're, and, and and you know, it's funny, man. I, I I'll I'll end like this. So. I worked for a civil engineering firm as a landscape architect, well, an associate. Um, I left that job because I couldn't be cooped up in an office after school. So I did my two years. I went to go work for a builder, and we were building this $4 million house on the coast. And it was an awesome experience. I started as a laborer. And um, 
every day I just hustled my ass off and I got all my tasks done to the point where they didn't know what to do with me. So they started introducing me to carpentry. So I, I learned a lot to the point where I, I was helping build a deck. And before you know it, I was trimming out the interior of closets and stuff. And um, had Instagram been around back then and people like you were doing your thing and I was following you, I probably would have gone into building. Mm -hmm. um, it's just, it's interesting to kind of reflect on what the times were like then because it was, it was so insular. Like I didn't know where to go. There was nowhere to really go on this crew. Um, yeah, it was the, the crew. Crew itself was the actual ladder. Yeah. Like, like yeah. you started here and that's where I go. Do I really like what Joe does with his life? Like yes. his little civic and his tools in the back. <laughs> yep. He lives yep. in an apartment with his mom. Yep. Is that really the, yep. the and, road and, I want? And we and were all 1099 and we were all 1099 yeah. and I had to, you know, make my 14 bucks an hour and buy tools. So yep. it, it ended up not being practical. So I, I ended up back into the landscape architecture world, but, um, now, you, I can see how you're a huge influence on a lot of people, man. I totally appreciate everything that you do, and um, we'll be watching. I, I just, um, I was, I, Samantha will contest this. I was like, man, I hope this guy comes on the podcast. I don't know, I don't know why he would, but he seems so busy, but you did it, and <laughs> I'm not? just, I'm thrilled. Yeah. I don't, you know, you never know. We're still new at this game, man, so. Um, we all are. We, yeah, I guess you're right. No, you guess no you're one's, right. No one's perfect, so it's, yeah. it's tough to say no for, for what reason. Yeah, right. I think it's, it's always a good conversation and there's always a great takeaway. Like there's definitely, you know, maybe I should have a landscape architect involved in my products more often. Oh, hey. I, I like the that. Right relationships, you know? And then, um, you know, people that listen to us that, that want to get to a level um, know that John's, you know, through Instagram is out there to answer your questions because there's going to be masons, there's going to be people that build stone walls and younger people coming up that are going to want to be involved with the things that you're doing. So it's just nice to know that you're out there. And you're in communication with people. And I think it's um, a huge service to the industry as a whole. Yeah. So let me see oh, if I can you. list all the ways that we can find you. Yeah. So we can find John at here's Johnny H on Instagram yep. at Vintage Johnny. Builders. That's like, like, like the shining. Here's Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> well, I always at, thought like of the Johnny Carson show. And I'm thinking like, I wonder the percentage of his followers actually know <laughs> where that's from. All right. At Vintage Builders on Instagram. On Facebook, on YouTube, at the Modern Craftsman Podcast, and at his homepage, vintagefilters.org. Nah, <laughs> yeah. Go there you first. About that. You can thank me later. <laughs> Everyone's going to go there and, wow, that's all he has. <laughs> You're going to see an awesome picture. Stuff of this guy. <laughs> yep. So thank you, John. Thank you so much for taking the time. Really, Gosh, really appreciate it. Pleasure. Great conversation, and I wish you the best at this podcast. And awesome. And keep killing it. Thank I'll you. I'll get to one of your job sites soon. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Likewise. Appreciate it, brother. Thanks. See you guys. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Please be sure to follow us at Landscapes and Pancakes underscore podcast on Instagram. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and comment where you listen to this podcast. And as always, check out our work and progress on magmadesigngroup.com and magmadesigngroup on Instagram.